Oh, look, an alert just came in. President Trump's lawyers... Oh, I don't care. <laughs> oh, there's another alert. Oh, it's a text from my wife. I actually care about this one. <laughs> um, oh, and another one. Sorry, I've, I really must turn this off. Tell me a story, Tom. Okay, here's a story. It's 1983 and Intel has a problem. Everyone is playing that sound logo in there. Exactly, you've got it. So Intel has this problem, which is that it's getting absolutely killed by the Japanese. At the time, Intel mainly makes memory chips. That's where most of the uh, market is. And it's losing the market, having dominated it in the early 70s. It's down to like 2% market share in 1983. And this is because the Japanese have figured out how to make memory chips much more efficiently than Intel. And Andy Grove, the boss of Intel, needs to fight back. He needs to figure out what to do. Part of the answer is he's going to get out of memory chips and he's going to get into microprocessors. He's going to switch the strategy of the company. But the other thing he's going to do is he's going to sort of fight back against what he thinks is a institutional advantage that the Japanese have. And this is that the Japanese engineering teams are all seated in the same room, very often around the same table. They're not all in cubicles. They're not in like separate offices and that sort of thing. Open office plan. Yeah. And so when they're trying to solve a problem, they're all in there. They're all talking. Or if they're not talking, they can hear what everyone else is saying. And so there's very, very efficient communication within the engineering teams. So did he switch to an open office plan? Well, you might think that was the moral of the story. In fact, what he did was he said, no, there's this new tool that we're going to be able to adopt that's going to be like putting the whole company in the same room, but without actually having to break down any of the walls. And the tool was email. Grove was sure that if he introduced email throughout Intel, it would give the company a huge advantage. He actually wrote a book that came out that year about management. It's called High Output Management. It's had a bit of a renaissance recently. But one of the things that has not aged quite so well is his description of email. He says, email turns days into minutes. The originator of a message can reach dozens or more of his or her co-workers with the same effort it takes to reach just one. Now, he thinks this is a good thing. Yes, this this is not (laughs) how I think about email. So you can see where this is going. So this was this amazing new way of distributing information that he was sure was going to give them a leg up on the Japanese. Now, to some extent, that was true. It worked. Intel fought back. They adopted email, among other things. They switched strategy. It was all great. Let's just say that our attitude to email is not quite as optimistic and, and rosy as I Andy dread Gray. opening my inbox every morning. That's not how we feel about now it. Now we turn off notifications because otherwise it becomes this deluge. It started with news push alerts and then it's social media alerts and it's email and then it's Slack. It just feels like every day there's a new thing coming at me in my face that I can't escape, I can't get away from. Is this... Is this a, a symptom of our times or is this something that like people have dealt with forever? The answer is yes and no. So this is a symptom of our times because the internet is here and obviously we didn't have the internet before. But We didn't ha- have phones in our pockets. Right, we exactly. didn't have watches that could notify us on our wrists. But it's not the first time that we've had an information explosion which has led people to feel this way. And in fact, if you look back at 500 years ago, the advent of the printing press people reacted in a surprisingly familiar way. And you get a lot of very, very contemporary-sounding complaints about what we now call information overload. From The Economist, I'm Tom Standage. And from Slate, I'm Seth Stevenson. And this is The Secret History of the Future.
This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. So Tom, in my imagination, before the printing press, we just have a bunch of scribes in monasteries who are copying out books by hand. Is that essentially what was happening? Yes, that's exactly what was happening. So it's very, very slow and it's very expensive also because they're copying stuff out onto parchment and essentially that's the skin of sheep and goats and so on. So if you want to make a book, not only do you need an army of scribes or a couple of scribes and the, the willingness to wait a very long time, you need an entire flock of sheep. Uh, and then inefficient. You, exactly, exactly. And so this this makes books extremely expensive. There are examples in the 10th and 11th centuries of people trading books for pieces of land or entire vineyards. They're not the sort of thing that an ordinary person could have in the house. And that's because there's so much labor involved, I guess. But then when we introduce a machine to to replace the scribes, how does that change things? Well, that's then a massive shift. And this is what Johannes Gutenberg does. So he puts together three things, a better way to cast metal type, and then you can lay out all the text that you need for a a given page of a book so that it's all ready to go. And then he combines that with oil-based inks which are sticky enough that you can put the ink onto the type and it'll just sit there and then you press that onto paper and by this stage paper has been introduced into Europe by the Arabs and you press it evenly across the whole surface using a screw press and this is something he's borrowed from winemaking. Essentially you turn this this great big thing and it, it pushes the paper onto the type and then you get this beautiful page. And the great thing about that is once you've set the type for a specific page, you can make a hundred copies of it. Um, sure. So something that would take weeks or months for a scribe to do now you can do, I guess, in a matter of, of minutes or hours. So what is the upshot of that? I mean, that seems like a massive technological advance. What's the upshot? Well, the upshot is that this idea, this whole approach that Gutenberg promotes spreads very, very quickly, starting in the sort of 1440s, 1450s. And by 1500, there are about a thousand presses operating across Europe, cranking out all of these books. And they can produce books at least a hundred times faster than you could by by hand copying. And so suddenly the price of books goes down, the availability of books goes up. And if you're thinking of writing a book and putting an idea out there as a book, suddenly that's something you can do. Because previously you were going to have to, I mean, how are you going to distribute it? You were going to pay a whole bunch of people and get a whole bunch of sheep. I mean, it just wasn't, wasn't feasible. So books become far cheaper and far more abundant and people start to worry that they're going to be overwhelmed. There are all these books far more than they can possibly read and they start to worry about information overload. I think the moment when this becomes a refrain, still only, of course, among an educated elite, was in the mid-16th century or so, when after about 100 years, they're really experiencing a much greater accumulation of books than ever before. Anne Blair is a historian at Harvard University. She's also the author of Too Much to Know, an account of the information overload caused by the printing press. Certainly, there were books produced in considerable numbers before printing, but In order to get a copy of a book, you had to access an original, and then you had to pay for a scribe to make a copy, which would easily take a year or so. So, of course, the quantities were just um, much lower. With printing, you have the opposite problem. In order to make it worthwhile to print a book, you've got to print at least 300 copies, more like 500 to 1,000 copies, and then you have to sell these things. Books are sort of the first mass-produced object where you're trying to create a market for something in order to recover your investment. 
For the first time in history, new books were appearing in huge numbers, thousands every year. Is there anywhere on earth exempt from these swarms of new books, moaned the great scholar Erasmus in 1525. He was not alone. Conrad Gesner, a Swiss scientist, complained of a confusing and harmful abundance of books. Francisco Sanchez, a Spanish philosopher, declared that 10 million years was not long enough to read all the books in existence. How could you possibly decide which ones to read? How would you ever know if you'd made the right choice? And still the books kept on coming. Gottfried Leibniz, a German polymath, complained of that horrible mass of books that keeps on growing. A French scholar had an even greater fear that the torrent of books would lead to the fall of civilization itself as good books and valuable knowledge were drowned out by rubbish. It is that same worry, I think, that Erasmus had, that it's just poorly written, poorly thought out, it's not worth our attention, and we are wasting our time, our resources on all this bad stuff. But I think they're worried about what they perceive as the dominant garbage, you know, whether it's their equivalent of fake news or repetitious, trallatitious authors, much like many websites that just repeat what's present elsewhere and aren't advancing knowledge, aren't worth saving, aren't worth our attending to. All right, so there's all this garbage out there, this overflow of books. It's overwhelming to the potential readers. What do they do about it? Well, they invent a bunch of new tools to help them classify and retrieve information. These are things that we're familiar with today. We don't even think of them as tools. They're just like normal parts of books. But at the time, they were very new and they were confusing. I'm talking about things like tables of contents. So, right, we just, that's so, <laughs> such a part of our life. We can't imagine someone inventing a table of contents. It seems so obvious. Right, exactly. But that's what they did. And the great thing about a table of contents is, like, you can take a book off the shelf, you can open it up and go, is there anything here I might want to read? Nah, okay, on to the next book. So suddenly it makes the book much more kind of... You can it, see how that yeah, would be exactly. a major advance. You can get your arms around it. You can go, okay, this book looks like it might be interesting or maybe, maybe not. And so tables of contents are also used as a sort of advertising device. So if you're a printer, you'll put a table of contents in your book so that when people are at a book fair deciding whether to buy it or not, they can quickly assess sort of what's in it. So they're a very useful tool for figuring out whether a particular book might be of interest to you. All right, so what are some of the other tools they developed? Well, if you take a really detailed table of contents and you add page numbers to it, and you can have fixed page numbers now, which you couldn't in the old days of hand-copied books because everyone's handwriting was different. Right. Okay, now you've fixed the pagination. So you've got a detailed list of, um, of what's in it with page numbers, and you then sort that in alphabetical order, and you get... An index. Right. And some of the indexes not only give you a page number, but also give you a place on the page. This makes it easier to navigate inside a book and to find the bits that you might be interested in, but that still left the problems of figuring out which books to open in the first place and keeping up with this constant stream of new books. How could you tell what books were out there? So the next thing was catalogues that were compiled and printed of all the books in a particular library or all the books that had gone on sale at a book fair. The published library catalogue is one way of just advertising these books are out there, you could buy them. And then you've got the idea of book reviews, and this is something that follows sort of in the 17th century. But the editor of one French periodical, which would print reviews of new books, um, suggests in 1688 that book reviews can act as a remedy for the flood and overflow of books. So this is very specifically a remedy for that problem, um, because you can quickly see whether there's an interesting new book, whether it's any good, whether you should bother to read it. So it's this kind of high-level tool that tells you what's out there. I would have just chosen my books by looking for the blurb 
from Erasmus telling me on the back. Yeah, but <laughs> quote, must read. So we haven't got Erasmus. Bl- exactly. We haven't got blurbs at this point. But this is very much in the in the tradition of these are things that just seem obvious to us now, but they had to be invented back then. Another innovation that helps you find books of interest was the encyclopedia. So an encyclopedia has little summaries on different topics, and then it has a reading list of, if you want to know more, go and read this book, it's quite good. So there's an implicit sort of recommendation function going on there. The first time we've got a kind of book that's called an encyclopedia and has a lot of stuff from a lot of different fields in it, like we would think of for an encyclopedia, is Johann Heinrich Alsted's Encyclopedia of 1630. The result is you've got this overlapping set of navigational tools or finding devices, as Anne Blair calls them, to help people find their way through the data deluge that's been caused by the printing press. And you've got catalogues and book reviews and encyclopedias to point people to specific books. And within those books, you've got table of contents and indexes to help you jump quickly to the information that would be most useful. In other words, that historical form of information overload, which was caused by the printing press and all of these books, is not something that we feel bothered by anymore, thanks to the invention of these new information management tools. So the printing press unleashes these reams of new information on people. They feel overwhelmed. Nowadays, the internet, smartphones, we feel overwhelmed. But I wonder if this is just a product of people trying to adjust to these big technological leaps that are happening. The feeling of being assaulted by information is old. If if the simple story of pre-modernity is true and kings and, and religious figures told you was the truth, well, then you kind of knew the totality of things to know because the, the scope was so small. And then the Enlightenment comes around and says, you know, you don't know everything and we have to go out and discover it. And pretty quickly, there are more books than you'd ever be able to read. This is Nathan Jurgensen. He's the in-house sociologist at Snapchat. You might remember we spoke to him about photography in a previous episode. Since he studies social media, Nathan spends a lot of his time thinking about how we use and share information. He thinks the anxiety of information overload is an inevitable consequence of the mass media era, which began with printing. It seems like the history of mass media is the history of information overload. Um, I think it's as, it's as old as, as having media. As have, uh, you know, it's as old as modernity. Modernity means that you have to discover the truth. It also means that you don't know everything. Right? Like, you can't know all knowledge. For as long as that's been the case, people have been writing about how terrible that makes them feel. Like, I think of Daniel Borstein's The Image, it was written in the 50s, and he's talking about how the 50s were this era of information overload, because he was saying the radio news had gone to telling the news not once an hour, but twice an hour. Newer forms of media have made us feel the same way, that there's more knowledge than we can ever keep up with. The first news ticker in Times Square made people feel that way. Twice an hour radio broadcast made people feel that way. You know, for me, it was the the ticker at the bottom of cable news made me feel that way. Uh, and uh, and I also feel that way about Twitter, absolutely. And uh, And so, you know, I don't think there is like a true pace of news or a true pace of information. Uh, It's different flavors of insecurity and powerlessness and feeling totally awash in a series of uh, news events that you you have nothing that you can do. And that kind of driftlessness with respect to information is what it is to be a, a person living in modernity. So it's not just the printing press and the internet. Radio and news tickers and cable news have caused similar reactions. The advent of the telegraph led to complaints in the 1870s about the acceleration of business life. 
So maybe this means that information overload will always be with us. Maybe we learn to deal with it anew each time as each new medium becomes more familiar and new tools get invented. So that suggests that one approach to dealing with information overload is to develop new tools of our own, just as people did centuries ago. And that's basically what we've done in the past few years. Right, that's what internet search engines are. Yahoo had an early one that became popular because it was a directory of websites, sort of like a table of contents for the web. But it had to be maintained by hand, so it didn't scale up. And then Google came along with its search engine, which was based on the idea that you can tell how relevant a page is by analyzing how pages link to each other. And that let Google build an index for the web that has scaled up to billions of pages. And just as scholars relied on book reviews in trusted journals to guide them to works of interest, we found a way to scale up personal recommendations, at least in some areas. So Netflix and Spotify and Amazon can analyze the behavior of millions of users and use the choices made by some people to make recommendations to others. So we found a way to scale up reviews. The 21st century version of the encyclopedia is Wikipedia which does a pretty good job of giving an overview of a subject and then suggests some other sources where you could find out more. And it's scaled up by relying on volunteers to create and edit pages that cover millions of topics. So in effect, we've updated the old tools that were invented to navigate books and made new versions of them that work for the internet. The trouble is, though, this just hasn't been enough. So what else can we do? mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey Tom, how are you? I'm very well. How are you? I'm doing good. I just I just read your book, History of the World in Six Classes. Oh right. Oh, excellent. It was great. I read it this morning. It took me about nine minutes. Oh, how did you do that then? When it comes to the internet, people are still trying to make the deluge of digital information more manageable. <laughs> so there's this thing called Blinkist. Oh, and yeah. it somebody, a human being, reads your book, and then distills it into like, you know, 10 pages, like a thousand words total, all the key points, and you can read it, they promise in 15 minutes or less, it took me about nine minutes to get through yours, maybe, maybe your book was, was less weighty. Yeah, that must be it. (laughs) But, um, but I feel like I missed out on your sparkling diamond tipped prose, but I wonder, did I get the key points, the key elements, the key takeaways of the book? even in nine minutes. Is that possible? That is a really good question. So how can we find out, do you think? I think you could quiz me. (laughs) Right. Okay. Uh, Let's start with uh, what are the six drinks? Okay. The six, well, of course we drink water for thousands and thousands of years, but the six drinks that you choose to focus on are beer, wine, uh, (laughs) spirits, distilled spirits, well done. Coffee, tea, and Coca-Cola. Brilliant. Okay, well, that's the main thing. And, <laughs> I got uh, it. Okay, so then the next thing is that each of those drinks... It turned out that Seth had got a pretty good idea of one of my books 
from reading one of Blinkist's summaries, which are called Blinks. Agriculture and keeping the grain in one place and storing it and hanging out near it so we can make beer with it, and that really affected sort of the patterns of human living. Is that, that do I have the basics? Pretty, that's a very good summary, yes, exactly. I'm really quite impressed. I think you could do a, a very good job of, uh, of pretending to have read my book. Now, are you offended at all by the idea that, that someone could just lop off, you know, reams of your hard, hard-won prose? All you need is to read this summary of the key points and facts, and uh, you're good to go. Does that offend you? No, it, I don't think it does, because these sorts of summaries, I mean, I have to make them myself. So when I talk about my book, I have to summarize it. When I, you know, do a talk about it or go on the radio or whatever, I have to boil it down myself. And then I also boil down other people's books when I write book reviews. You've got a very generous spirit, because I kind of get angry at the thought that someone's going to read the nine-minute summary of my book when I spent, you know, literally years working on it, slaving over crafting it, and 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 now you think you can get the essence of it from an app. What this could potentially be doing is exposing more people to your book. And that's really what happens with the book review. So I think just think of this as like a, a very long and detailed book review. And people who are like really keen are still going to go and want to read the book. Is this the solution to the information overload problem that, that we face where there are just so many good nonfiction books out there and you want to be able to understand them and talk about them at cocktail parties and just feel like you've got a life of the mind? Is this a valid solution to that? I think it is for some, for some situations because the origin of book reviews was that people were overloaded by books back in the day. And uh, so this is a sort of a new twist on that. And I think also a lot of business books, frankly, would be much better at 10 pages. That they don't, They're not really <laughs> full of ideas. I think it's a very good way to consume those sorts of books. Whereas if you want to read narrative history, then sometimes you really want to immerse yourself in a book like that, like in a, in a hot bath. I'm going to get in the bath of your book tonight, Tom, and I'm going to give it its full due. Excellent. I'm glad to hear it. Thank you. By listing recommendations in different topic areas and by making audio versions of its summaries, Blinkist is sort of an update of the idea of the book review for the internet era, a new way to guide people to information that they might find relevant. But it's hard to tell which of these new tools that try to address modern-day overload will catch on. Today, we think tables of contents and indexes are simple and obvious, but even their adoption took some time. They required people to learn new skills, and it was not without controversy. Early on, I think indexes were viewed as a plus in printed books. And um, early indexes have a little paragraph explaining to you how to use it. And one thing they warn you about is that you should look under different headwords for the same concept, which is a great point. Like if you're wealth or riches, they're synonymous. So those little warning uh, sort of how to use an index are a sign that a much broader public needs to be introduced to this tool and help to appreciate it. But there was also a bit of a backlash against indexes, wasn't there? There was. And there's this great 18th century author who says explicitly he's not going to have an index to his book lest people not read the book and only read it in bits through the index. Writers fretted that jumping directly to particular passages meant that readers would fail to appreciate texts fully. Jonathan Swift complained in 1704 of people who pretend to understand a book by scouting through the index, a trick he condemned as index learning. Some authors even refused to allow their books to be indexed altogether to force people to read them all the way through. Book reviews were also looked upon with suspicion. 
I'm sure that indeed book reviews were used then, as they often still are now, as substitutes for reading the books themselves. And that, too, would be a sign of lack of learning. Overall, there's another complaint throughout this period, which is that all these tools can make it possible for someone who doesn't really have much learning to appear learned. And that worried people a lot. So the new navigational tools devised for print raised new concerns, and it took people a while to get used to them. We should expect the adoption of new tools today to be similarly bumpy, and for as long as our tools are inadequate, we will feel overwhelmed. It took centuries to address the information overload caused by printing. So will we be able to solve the problem more quickly this time? One piece of hope is that things are changing so much faster, and I presume that that will mean we'll get new tools a lot faster than uh, the, the pace at which they were developed in the early modern period. Say information overload today, and many people will instantly think of email and their overflowing inboxes. In recent years, there have been several attempts to replace email with other communications tools. Tools like Slack, a popular messaging system that allows teams, whether in the same office or not, to communicate via short messages. Slack's become hugely popular, first in the tech industry and now more widely, because it can be an easier way to coordinate activity among several people than using email. So unlike email, which has this accumulation of messages in an inbox, Slack is based on a set of chat rooms, with each chat room dedicated to a particular team or topic within a company. The messages flow past you like a river, and most of the time, you don't have to go back and fish anything out, though you can do that if you need to. You can also dip into a conversation within a particular team and just get a general sense of what's going on there, which you could never do as easily with email. A survey of Slack users done by the company in 2015 found that Slack reduced the volume of email by 49% and the number of meetings by 24%. But that doesn't mean that Slack is the answer to everything. Even Stuart Butterfield, the company's founder and CEO, says internet communication is still a work in progress. I feel like we're probably in like 1890s to 1910 territory if we use an analogy of like electricity to the internet or industrial revolution to communication tools, we're pretty naive still, even us, um, even with our exposure to customers and seeing all the things that they've done. Personally, I feel like the internet is as big a transformation in technological terms as the development of written language, which means it's like the third biggest thing that ever happened, spoken language, written language, internet. Um, And I would expect it takes us at least several generations to figure out how to most effectively deal with it. Slack has a lot of fans, including me. We even use it to help us make this podcast. But it also has critics who say that while it solves one problem by reducing the amount of email flying around in companies, it's created another problem because now there are millions of Slack messages flying around instead. There's a great expression, which I'm going to take the expletive out of, but... um, Becoming rich doesn't make you a jerk. Um, It just makes you more of who you already were. And um, in one sense, money is leverage to be able to do the things you want. Um, Slack is leverage for organizations to be able to communicate. And if there's bad habits of communication, it can exacerbate those. So it's a great instrument and people have to learn how to use it. People have to learn how to take advantage of that power with uh, while minimizing the downsides. When it comes to information overload, Slack can sometimes make things better, but there's a risk it can make them worse. 
its creators are tweaking the product to try to make sure that it's part of the solution and not part of the problem. There's absolutely things in the product that we can do to adjust that and to try to drive people towards a better experience. There's a ton of little stuff that we do, and I'll give you one example. We found a need for a do not disturb feature. And I think that we will evolve the way we kind of the kind of guide rails around how we push people towards a certain kind of use, but we'll also come up with better training. But also organizations will just evolve better ways to to use the tool. I think Stuart Butterfield is grappling with this stuff in a very earnest way and that he's trying to make things better. And I think he's totally right that this is going to be an evolution, that things are going to change over time and we're going to adapt and tech companies are going to have to adapt to the ways that we adapt and all that's going to happen. But when he talks about guiding people, guidelines that steer people towards certain kinds of behavior, I wonder if to some ears that could sound a little sinister. Yeah, and I think you could argue that some modern apps are sinister. I mean, they're designed to suck you in and to keep you engaged, and that contributes to the the feeling of overload. A lot of times in this series, we've looked at things where people have said, oh, this has never happened before. And we've said, well, actually, here's an interesting you know story from history. And we're doing that this time because we're saying information overload isn't new. But it really does seem like in this case, things might be different this time around in the smartphone era because these devices make calls on our attention in a way that previous technologies like books didn't. Right. The books didn't jump off of Erasmus's desk and start making buzzing noises and demand that he read them. But your smartphone does do that, right? It, it has these push alerts and notifications, and it, they create this constant urge to reach into your pocket and see if there's a new message. You can just ignore a book. It just sits there silently. But when your phone is beeping at you, it's hard to ignore it. Right. And some people are starting to get quite worried about this. People like Tristan Harris. He's a digital design ethicist who used to work at Google. And he's now the head of a nonprofit group called the Center for Humane Technology. Information overload is the experience of overloading the kind of limits, the cognitive limits, the emotional limits, the sense-making limits of our minds. And how does the design of digital products today contribute to that? I am from the tech industry. I know how these products are built. I know the people that built them. And... um Many of my friends built some of these companies, including the founders of Instagram. Uh, what most people don't understand about how technology is designed is there's teams of product managers who have one goal, which is how do I keep you using the product frequently and for as long as possible? So now people are as overloaded as possible. Surely this is just something that happens whenever we get a new communications technology. Is anything different this time around? Absolutely. So um, in other situations in history, we weren't living by a device. When I say living by, I mean we check our phones again about 80 times a day from the moment you wake up and undo your alarm to all the times you're in the toilet and the bathroom and the lines and then to when you set your alarm at night. So you're completely jacked in. I mean, imagine a jack in the back of your head like the Matrix. Jacked in. So information overload is a moment-to-moment experience in a way that's never been true before. One way to address this problem, Harris suggests, is to raise awareness among the engineers who build these attention-sucking products. What we found is that when engineers see that this race for attention is causing these problems, they don't actually want to work at those companies. And it makes it harder to face up to your friends when you're having drinks in the Mission District of San Francisco. And you take a sip and you say you work at one of the companies and your friends say, why are you, know, why aren't you guys doing more to tackle this issue? But he also suggests that there are things we can do as consumers. You know, the main thing is also to make it a cultural shift so that people are aware that this system is designed to manipulate them and to use to getting as much attention as possible. When people understand that, that's the biggest thing. You know, one thing we've helped popularize is uh, turning your phone grayscale. 
So if you turn your phone grayscale, why, why would you ever do that? Well, it's because when you look at your phone and you see the color, it's lighting up parts of your nervous system in ways you don't even choose. Just to look at, see some colorful notifications and see the colorful icons, it does something to your nervous system you don't even control. And um, it, it, if you turn your phone grayscale, you're, you're subtracting some of those addictive qualities, probably by about 10%. But the main thing is, in terms of what it does for a consumer, is it also signals a conversation. When you're cooking dinner and you turn to check your phone and your friend sees that your phone's in grayscale, they say, why did you do that? And that starts the conversation of like, well, I'm doing it because these social media companies are hijacking my mind and my attention, and then I, I wanted to change it. All right, Tom, so what does this all mean in practice? What can we do about it? Well, I think if we start by looking at the lessons from history, we can expect that there will be new tools that will help us navigate all this stuff, but they won't appear straight away. So maybe there'll be things in the future like AI assistants that, you know, decide which emails to put through or help us find interesting stuff to read or, you know, make selections for us. Who knows? But what we do know is that when these new tools come along, we won't be able to tell which are the kind of good ones. The adoption will be a bit bumpy. It'll be controversial. But in retrospect, it'll seem obvious. And, you know, 50 years from now, people will go, well, of course, you know, everyone uses whatever it is. So that's the kind of pattern that we see in history. And I think we can expect to see the same thing again now. Yeah. And, and in the meantime, I, you know, there are some things we can take the initiative and do on our own. We can turn off all those alerts and notifications and badges so that our phones aren't bleeping all the time. We could take digital Sabbaths where we just put our phone in a drawer for a day or two. There are these apps they make that where that sort of force you to shut off the internet for a prescribed period of time. You could not sleep in the same room as your phone, so you're not waking up and checking it instantly or checking it right before you go to sleep. And then there's this other sort of societal thing I think we could do where we could just kind of chill out and not hold each other to these to these standards of, of like informational up-to-dateness where I don't expect you to know all the news that just happened all the time. I don't expect you to have read my email that I sent to you seven minutes ago. And we just relax a little bit. Well, actually, we're seeing some signs of that in Europe. So um, so some German companies are trying to discourage the use of email in the evenings. And France has even passed a law that gives workers the legal right not to have to check their email out of hours. But my favorite example is Daimler, which is the company behind Mercedes-Benz cars. And they give workers an option to discard incoming emails while they're away on holiday. So they come back to an empty inbox. And if you send them an email while they're away, you just get a message saying, sorry, it's gone in the bin. If you really need an answer, email someone else or just try them again in a couple of weeks. So that, I think, is part of this kind of trying to reduce the pressure on people and the expectations that everything needs to be replied to straight away and uh, and and that people are going to feel overloaded if, if they come back from holiday and there's like 5,000 emails. Yeah, I think it would be nice if our employers did that for us. I also think that the tech industry uh, has some responsibility here. You know, they could make their products a little bit less addictive. The problem there is that it aligns with their business model to keep us all overloaded. Right. And that's why Tristan Harris and others are putting pressure on companies through both consumers and employees to make products that don't induce this feeling of overload by designing them differently. But yeah, things like infinite scroll. Do we really need to have infinite scroll on everything? I mean, that's one of the, that's one of the things that, uh, yeah, keeps you scrolling on Twitter and Facebook, but it's also what makes you feel overloaded. So maybe, I mean, Instagram has this now. You, you scroll for a bit. And if you've seen everything that everyone's posted, it says, right, that's it. You've seen everything. Bye. Go do something else. Yeah. We need more of that. A little bit of a nudge to get you off your phone. Well, if we step back and look at the, the bigger picture, the problem here with information overload has to do with how people and technology interact and how technology can exploit the weaknesses in human nature. When I spoke to Stuart Butterfield of Slack, he drew an interesting analogy with another kind of somewhat unhealthy, gluttonous sort of consumption. I don't feel assaulted by information um, any more than I feel assaulted by crappy food. 
But there's a lot of crappy food that's available for free or for very cheap all over the place. And like other members of our species, I got a couple hundred million years of evolution driving me towards uh, fats and sugars and a pretty basic survival instinct. And now we live in a world of effectively like infinite free calories. People get diabetes. Um, it's hard to control yourself. So if I don't pick up my phone, Twitter's still there and all the tweets are still there. Um, and they're not coming to get me. But I definitely feel like it's much more of a compulsion or obsession in humans rather than some intrinsic problem with information. The upshot is that information overload is not a new problem, and history can give us some ideas about how to tackle it. But as we await better tools, or less addictive ones, or both, maybe we also need to think more carefully about just how much information we really need to consume. People who are able to effectively control their own appetite for information and their own use of information technology are in a much better and more advantaged place. And it's a worthy thing for each of us to try to cultivate, to make an attempt to be really intentional about our use of technology, our consumption of information, um, and what we choose to pay attention to, because there's this whole infinite world and our attention is absolutely finite. Thanks for listening. That's the end of this season of The Secret History of the Future. So we won't be adding to your queue of new podcasts next week. Look, we're helping to reduce your information overload already. Right. So uh, thanks also to everybody who's recommended this podcast to your followers on Twitter, or if you've sent us an email or tweeted at us, or if you've written a review on iTunes, you now know, having listened to this episode, that reviews are a great way for people to find stuff they might like. So keep writing those reviews. If you haven't left us a rating or review, we'd really appreciate it if you did. And if you'd like to get in touch with us directly, our email address is secrethistory at slate.com. Send us your plaudits, your criticisms, or anything at all you want to tell us. I'm Tom Standage. And I'm Seth Stevenson. The Secret History of the Future is a joint production of Slate and The Economist. It's produced by Bart Warshaw and Kate Holland. Thanks to Steve Lichtai, June Thomas, Alison Benedict, Amika Shortino-Nolan, Sandra Schmirelli, and of course, to all our guests. The senior producer for Slate Podcasts is TJ Raphael. The editorial director for Slate Podcasts is Gabriel Roth. And the executive producer for The Economist is Anne McElvoy. 